excellent singing tonight. Um, if you did not grab uh, one of the communion cups on your way in, they're on the back table uh, there by the, the door, and we'll get to those at the end of the service, but certainly you can feel free to grab one now. If you're visiting with us tonight, uh, we want to thank you for being here, and we hope that the service, uh, as we spend some time thinking over the, the death of our Savior, I pray that it would, would be helpful to us. Um, sometimes we think only the positive things in life are helpful, um, but if we're honest, the death of Christ was one of the most negative things that ever occurred, uh, but it brought about the greatest good that also has ever occurred. And so I do pray tonight that our hearts would be encouraged. Um, I'm just going to be up front with you. I got 10 points tonight, and uh, they're not long. But there is 10 of them, so you can count them down, frontward, backwards, whatever way you want. But as we go through Matthew 27, you can turn there in your Bibles. We're not going to read the passage because it's lengthy, but we're, we're going to read the verses as we come to them. We're going to look at verses 11 through 56. And we're going to stay with the theme that we started on Sunday, Behold Your King. We're going to talk through the final hours of Christ's life as He stood before Pilate, as he found himself being beaten as he made his way to the cross, and then as he was crucified. Um, and I pray that as we look through this passage, that our hearts would be stirred uh, for our Savior. Who's thankful tonight for Jesus? Amen. Um, truthfully, we would have no reason to be here if it weren't for him. If this was just a gathering of, of like-minded people, um, about any other cause, then we could say there's probably better things you could do. But friend, there is nothing better to do than spending time focusing on our Savior. And I pray tonight that as we do this, that our hearts again would be challenged and stirred um, by the Word of God. So let's open in a word of prayer, and then we'll jump right into our time together. God, we thank you for this evening that we can gather to remember. And God, we're thankful today that, that we're not here to remember a funeral of a loved one. But God, we're, we're remembering what Christ did on our behalf in dying for us and looking forward to Sunday when we celebrate fully the resurrection as he conquered death, hell, and the grave. God, I pray tonight as we go through this passage, as we look at these 10 observations, I do pray that our hearts would be stirred and challenged, God, that that we would think through each of these things in a personal way, that, that you, God, would do a great work in us through your spirit and through your word this evening. God, if there's any here tonight who have never trusted Christ, I, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation, that as they look to the cross and they see the one who died for them, that they would make this personal and turn to him by faith as the spirit draws them to himself. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We pray that you'd receive the honor and glory from it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In the final week of the life of Christ, we see that a lot happened. From the triumphal entry in Matthew 21 to the point that we are in the story today, we see that the week was indeed very, very full. From teaching to cleansing the temple in a righteous anger 
to washing the disciples' feet, to the Last Supper, to Peter's vow of loyalty and Judas's vow of betrayal, this week was truly like no other. In each of these scenarios, it's important to remember how Christ acted in humility, in accordance to the will of the Father, in love and compassion, with integrity. Christ was the same on this week as he had been every other week of his life. It's an incredible testimony to the submission that Jesus had to the eternal plan of God the Father. And it's also an encouragement to us to see the unchanging nature of our Savior. As we get into Matthew 27, this again is where things really begin to pick up. From verse 11 to verse 56, we see that Christ is put in every scenario that you could imagine, and yet he remained true to his calling in each one of them. Tonight, I want to walk through this text and make some observations that I think will be helpful to us as we seek to behold our King. It's important to remember as we go through passages like this that Jesus was indeed a real man who felt real pain, who dealt with real emotions, and who carried real burdens. For in remembering, our minds will likely be smitten or captivated again by the glory of our Savior. Friends, I, I cannot stress this enough. When we downplay the reality of the crucifixion of Christ, we're doing ourselves a huge disservice. We must see and believe these things as they're revealed to us in the Scripture. And in doing so, we will maintain a proper view of all that Christ went through on our behalf. The big idea this evening is this. As Christ made His way to the cross... His burden was heavy, his grief was real, his pain was intense, but his love was steadfast. As we stood in our sin as enemies of the Savior, this is when he died for us. I pray that these observations tonight will be helpful as we make our way through the final hours of Christ before he took his final breath on the cross. The first thing we see is in verse number 11, and it's simply this, Pilate questioned him. Verse number 11 of Matthew 27 says, And Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus said unto him, Thou sayest. Jesus had stood before religious and governmental officials before, but never like this. This was all a part of the plan of God that he would stand and be condemned and be delivered and sent away. And as Pilate questioned Jesus here, it's interesting that in all of Matthew 27, where Jesus is reviled and questioned and, and mocked and made fun of and beaten, Matthew records only these words. When Pilate asked the question, are you the king of the Jews? We understand that in some sense, this question had elements of sincerity and mockery. Pilate was not necessarily troubled by him because he certainly didn't look like one who was coming to take his rightful place as a king. But there was still likely some intimidation on the behalf of Pilate, especially when Jesus answers the question. And so again, Pilate says, Art thou the king of the Jews? And Jesus responds, Thou sayest. Jesus was affirming the words of Pilate as true. 
From this point on, Jesus would be questioned by the chief priests and the elders, but he remained silent in it all. For he had spoken what needed to be spoken, and that was simply this, that he was indeed the king. And though he hadn't come to take his place on the throne in Jerusalem, we understand that he is on the throne today. And we understand that he is the king that we worship. This interaction was not pleasant like the rest of the interactions that Jesus had with the people who we'll talk about in the coming verses. But all of these things are what Christ went through for us. You see, Pilate doesn't fully listen to the claim of Christ here in this moment. He doesn't take Christ seriously that he is indeed the king. And I would ask us tonight, as Pilate questioned Christ, do we take Christ's answer seriously? As Jesus said, thou sayest, he was agreeing that I am indeed the king. And I wonder today, do we believe that Jesus is the king? And if we do, do we treat him as such? The second observation I told you will go fairly quickly is that the religious elites rejected him. In verses 15 through 25, we won't read them for time's sake, but you can take a look at them in your own time or read through them as I'm speaking now. But we see that the, the religious crowd, uh, after Pilate had, had questioned him, we see that the religious elites then went on to reject him. As time went on, it seems that Pilate was in some way on Christ's side. Not, not in the sense that he believed he was the king, but in the sense that he believed that Jesus was innocent. In fact, Pilate's wife came and said, Hey, you should have nothing to do with this man because I've been troubled greatly about him in my sleep. And yet to please the people that were around him, Pilate said, we need to move forward with some sort of plan because I'm finding myself in a horrible predicament here. And so Pilate came up with a plan. He devised this plan that he thought the people couldn't pass up. And as it was custom in the feasting time, they would release one prisoner to the people. Pilate put before the people Barabbas, who was an insurrectionist, one who sought to overthrow the government. He had the spirit of anarchy within him. He was likely a murderer or at the very least a thief. And how would the people dare release this man amongst themselves to walk on the streets that their wives and children would walk on? And so Pilate thought by putting forth these two people, no doubt the people would side with Jesus. Because they didn't want Barabbas back on the streets. But when Pilate asked the question, whom shall I release to you? They began to cry Barabbas. They were willing to trade an innocent man for one whose life was filled with sin. They were willing to trade a man who had done them no harm to, to get a man who had only lived a life of harm. Pilate, as he thinks through this scenario, he really doesn't know what to do, so he washes his hands of the situation, signifying that his, this blood of Jesus was not on him. And, and they, the question is asked, what then shall we do with Jesus? And before the question is asked, the religious crowd had already started working the people, saying we need to get rid of Jesus, we need to condemn Jesus, we need to crucify Jesus. And so when the question was asked, what shall we do with Jesus, the religious crowd began to cry out, crucify him, destroy him, end his life. We want nothing to do with this man. And as Pilate thinks through that scenario, 
And as the religious crowd is crying out, we see that the people take it a step further. They don't just say crucify him, but they say his blood be on us and on our children. Think about that. In this moment when the sinless Savior was standing before these people who were claiming to wait for the Messiah, as the option is put forth before them on this day, they say, give us Barabbas and crucify Jesus and we'll take the blame for all that's done here. And in making this claim, they were in reality doing themselves double harm because, as I said, they were releasing to themselves a wicked and vile criminal. And they were standing in that moment against the God-man, Jesus Christ. We know all of these things were foreordained by God, that Jesus would go to the cross and be crucified, but we also understand that God used these people as instruments to perform his will And they were held accountable for the things that they did. And I wonder today, as the religious crowd rejected Jesus in this moment, have you rejected Jesus? You may say, well, I'm a good religious person. I I make it to church. I'm here on a Friday night of all times to be in church. But I wonder, have you rejected Jesus by the way that you live your life and the way that you carry yourself in the way that you believe Uh, on other than simply Christmas or Easter or these religious holidays that we often enjoy as Christians. And as Pilate questioned Jesus, the second thing we see is the religious elites rejected Jesus. And the third thing we see in verses 26 through 31 is that the soldiers beat Jesus. As the scene continues for us in Matthew 27, In verse 26, the Bible says, Then released he Barabbas unto them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. That scourging to us doesn't sound like a big deal, but friend, can I tell you, it was the worst thing that a person could face outside of the crucifixion itself. To bring a human being to the point of death by beating as they whipped him with the cat of nine tails and every strand of that whip would have within it bone or glass or shards of metal or stone and they would swing that whip in such a way that it would wrap around the body of Jesus and each one of those things would pierce his skin and then as they pulled that whip back to themselves, those things that went into the body of our Savior, would tear open his flesh so that his blood began to pour to the ground and to the point most believe, especially for Jesus, that his internal organs became visible. And they took him to the common hall. The Bible says that a band of soldiers gathered in there, and again, that's words that we don't typically use. We don't think of a band and soldiers going together. But a band would have been a tenth of a part of a legion. And that would have been anywhere from 400 to 600 soldiers gathered in that room. When they gathered Christ in that room, the Bible says that they stripped him of his clothes. And they placed on him a purple robe. And they took a crown that they had woven together out of thorns. And they forced it on the head of our Savior so that again the blood 
would pour down his face. They put a reed in his hand. They began to mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And then they took that reed and they began to beat him on the head. And then one by one, those soldiers passed him and they spit upon him in the most vile and disgusting manner that you could think of. And friend, this is what our Savior went through for us. These are the things that, that you and I deserve for the sins that we had committed. This is the punishment that Christ took upon himself so that we could be made free. And while Pilate questioned him and the religious elites rejected him, we see that the soldiers beat him to a point that he was beyond recognition. These men were doing evil and horrible and wicked things to the sinless Savior. They didn't know what they were doing. In fact, they were simply doing what they were trained to do. And yet all of these things Christ took upon himself so that you and I could be set free. And so Pilate questioned him and the religious elites rejected him and the soldiers beat him. And then in verse 32, we see that Simon served him. The Bible says that after the scourging, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear the cross. And as Jesus made his way from the common hall to Golgotha, he would have been strapped with that cross beam of the cross upon his back. And most believe it would have weighed about 75 pounds, which doesn't seem like a lot of weight, but when you just went through what Jesus went through, 75 pounds would have seemed unbearable. As the strength and energy was, was ripped from his body, so to speak, as the beating took place, and as that cross beam was placed upon his shoulders, we see that it became too much for him to carry, and so they grabbed an innocent man from the crowd named Simon from Cyrene, which would have been from northern Africa. And he was likely there as a Jewish convert who came to observe the Passover with his children. And as they grabbed him from the crowd, this was an, an, a, a turning moment for them in their lives. You see, Simon likely didn't still understand who Christ was in that moment. But I believe he stuck around. To see what happened to this man that he carried the cross for. And it wasn't just Simon that was there, but his two sons were there with him. And in fact, the New Testament speaks of his two sons as they became leaders in the early church. And all of this was brought about because Simon was chosen to serve Christ. And as Simon served Christ, isn't it true that in reality Christ was serving Simon? As Christ went to the cross for the things that Simon had done. And so Pilate questioned him. The religious elite rejected him. And the soldiers beat him. And Simon served him. And number five, we see that the soldiers crucified him. In verses 33 through 38, the Bible says, And when they were come... And to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, the place, a place of the skull, they gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would 
not drink. And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there and set up over his head this accusation written, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. The soldiers crucified him. As Simon carried the cross, they eventually made it to Golgotha. They tried to give him something to lessen the pain. But Jesus refused it because he knew he needed to experience the full wrath of God. And then they placed him on a cross by piercing his hands and his feet. And they set the cross in its place. And there he hung, naked and bloody and bruised. Hung as a spectacle for all to see. He was crucified in the place of criminals and with criminals. And remember, church, this is what we deserved. Matthew doesn't give the details that the other Gospels give. But the scene before us in the Gospel of Matthew gives us enough to understand what our Savior went through for us. So much prophecy was fulfilled in this final day of Christ. So many things that were spoken of before in the prophets and even by Christ himself came true in this moment to to the point that they, they actually parted his garments and they cast lots for them. And I want you to imagine this scene as Jesus is hanging there naked on the cross. The one who had created the heaven and earth was now suspended between heaven and earth and he hung as a sacrifice for the sins that his creation had committed. What a gruesome but beautiful picture this is. And friends, I wonder tonight, do you feel the weight of the scene as Jesus was crucified? I love what John Stott says, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. That as Christ went to the cross, he went on our behalf. We weren't there physically on that day. But as Christ died on the cross that day, he died for those who would put their faith and trust in him that they would be redeemed from their sins. And there he was, an innocent man crucified between two thieves. So Pilate questioned him and the religious elite rejected him and the soldiers beat him and Simon served him and the soldiers crucified him. And then the crowd reviled him. In verses 39 through 44, the Bible says that as they passed by, and they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, Thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. If thou be the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now, if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. The thieves also, which were crucified with him, cast the same in his teeth. And so as Christ was crucified on the cross, we see that that wasn't bad enough, but then all those who were looking on on that day, or most of those who were looking on that day, began to revile him and mock him. 
and shake their fists at him and shake their heads at him in disgust. They spoke evil of him. They brought up what he said in the past, misapplying and misunderstanding all that he meant. He said he could rebuild the temple in three days, but he cannot save himself. He said he believed in God. Well, why doesn't God save him now? He saved others, but he can do nothing for himself. It's interesting that the accusations of those who were surrounding the cross on that day sound very similar to the accusations of Satan in the wilderness. If you're really the Son of God, do this or do that. I think we could say that both accusations were motivated by the same thing. And yet here Christ was, hanging between two thieves listening to the crowd as they mocked him and reviled him. And yet, I love how Peter reminds us that when he was reviled, he reviled not again. But he remained innocent to the moment that he took his last breath. And it wasn't just the onlookers from the ground, but it was, it was those who were hanging with him. And we know that one of those men hanging on the cross that day, eventually after seeing all that was done and the way that Jesus responded, came to faith in Christ. And Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. And that goes to show that the heart of Christ on the cross was a heart that was burdened for sinful men. In a moment where he could have looked that criminal in the eye and said, forget you. Do you remember the things you just said about me a few moments ago? Do you remember the way that you reviled me and mocked me and stood against me? Forget you. But instead, Jesus turns to that man and says, Today, you will be with me in paradise. What a savior. What a friend of sinners. What a story that we have believed in that has changed our lives. Oftentimes we think of Christ being hung extremely high on a cross, almost so that he was out of the earshot of the people, but in truth, his feet were probably only a few feet off the ground. So he was close enough to hear everything that went on. And do you know the truth? They were also close enough to hear everything that he said. And I imagine that the words that Christ spoke, though Matthew doesn't record many of them, rang in the hearts and minds of these people for days and days to come as they thought about the Savior. The next thing we see is that the Father forsook him. As Matt read Isaiah 53 to start our service off, the verse that has always got me in that passage is where it says, it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Think about that. That it pleased the Father to see His Son beaten and condemned and hanging on a cross to die the death that you and I deserve. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. And while we understand that this scene before us as it plays out leads to the Father forsaking the Son, we know that it was not a pleasing sense and that it was enjoyable but it was pleasing in the sense of what it produced, which was salvation for a lost and dying world. 
The cries from the crowd would have been hard to handle. But the thing that broke him was the turning away of his father. There are some who have tried to explain away this idea that the father forsook the son. But friend, I think we just need to take the scriptures for what they say plainly. That in this moment, as Jesus took the sins of the world upon himself, that the father turned his back on his son because he could not look on the sin on, that was placed on his son. So he turned his back on his son so Christ could bear the full weight of the wrath of God. You see, we often talk about the penalty for sin being an eternity in hell. We like to highlight the fire. I don't know why, but we do. But do you understand tonight that the greatest torment in hell is being separated from God for all of eternity? Never to escape. Never to come free. And as Jesus took the wrath of the Father on himself in this moment, we understand that Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know this was a quote from Psalm 22, and it was for the fulfillment of what Jesus knew was coming, and I believe with all my heart that it was something he was dreading. As he prayed in the garden, Father, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. He was thinking about the beating and the scourging and the crown of thorns and all that came along with the crucifixion, but the greatest thing that Christ faced on the cross was that moment that his father turned his back on his only son as Jesus felt the full weight of the sins of humanity. And in a moment where he felt alone and rejected already because of the things that the people were saying, it was taken to a new level of intensity when the father turned his back on his son. But understand, church, but the Father forsook him so that we could be forgiven. The Father turned away from his Son as he hung on the cross so that he could then look on us with joy as he now sees us in the imputed righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ. And so the Father looking away and forsaking his Son is something that needed to be done so that we could be forgiven. After this, the Bible says that, that Jesus cried out with a loud voice as he gave up the ghost and he said, It is finished! Understand, as he cried these words, it is finished, he was not talking about his existence as God, but he was talking about our sin. The payment for sin had been completed. The transaction was done. It is finished. You see, the cross was not the end of Christ, but it was the end of my sin. As he took that sin upon himself and the Father forsook him in that moment. And so Pilate questioned him and the religious elites rejected him and the soldiers beat him and Simon served him and the soldiers crucified him and the crowd reviled him and the father forsook him. But then in verse 54, we see that the centurion recognized him. And as all of this scene was playing out and as darkness came upon the earth for three hours and as Jesus cried from the cross, we see that there was a man standing at the foot of the cross in verse number 54 who says this, Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things which were done, they feared greatly, saying this, truly this was the Son of God. What I think is important for us to understand 
that if it wasn't for the Father forsaking the Son, then the centurion never would have realized that Jesus was the Son of God. He recognized him. This man had seen many crucifixions before, had taken, taken part in many uh, other scenarios where guilty men were hung on a cross until they died, until they breathed their last breath, but never before had the earth gone dark, and it wasn't an eclipse like men like to say it was. It was the darkness that came over the earth as all of creation was groaning for what was taking place in that moment, as God was looking upon this situation with great sympathy and pain in his heart. Darkness came upon the face of the earth, and this centurion who was at the foot of the cross when he saw all of these things take place he said truly this was the son of God he recognized that he was more than a prophet and more than a teacher and more than a healer and more than a friend of sinners he was more than a religious expert or a guy who knew how to draw a crowd he was the son of God and church can we agree today that he still is the son of God And he lives today and serves as our great high priest who we have access to the Father through because he rose again triumphantly from the grave. As this man saw the Savior hanging on the cross, there was something within him in this moment that also recognized that he truly was the Son of God. And I would ask you today, church, have you recognized this about Jesus? Have you recognized that the man who died was not just a good man, but he was the son of man, as we've seen in Mark already, and he was indeed the son of God, the one who came as the God-man to do what we could never do for ourselves, to fulfill the law and all of its righteousness, and then to die in our place so that we could be forgiven. We know this was not a last-minute plan of God to fix things that had gone wrong, but Jesus was the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, and one day that lamb will be worshipped with people around the throne from every tongue and every tribe and every nation as we sing holy 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 is the one who died for us and rose again so that we could have life i wonder today have you recognized this man as jesus the ninth thing we see tonight is that the women beheld him What's interesting about the gospel story is that it places an extra emphasis on the women who surrounded Jesus, not only in his ministry, but in his death and resurrection. In fact, it was the women who came to the tomb first to see that Jesus had risen from the grave. It was the testimony of the women that the disciples believed, and then they went to the tomb to see it for themselves. And in this day, as wrong as it was, the testimony of women was not one that, that was trusted, It wasn't one that was believed. It wasn't one that was taken seriously. Isn't isn't it true that what the world looks at as foolish, God often uses for his purposes? And as the women were surrounding the cross on that day, in verses 55 and 56, the Bible says, And many women were there beholding afar off, which followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering unto him among which was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's children. One of these women in particular, Mary Magdalene, was one who Jesus had done a great work in her life. 
She was healed, had several demons within her, and Jesus cast those demons out and gave her a new life. And as she understood the power of Jesus in a physical sense, as he healed her from the thing that she carried about for probably many years, now she found herself devoted to him until the end and beyond as she was one of those women who found herself at the tomb seeing Jesus firsthand as he resurrected from the dead. And these women who were so devoted to him, while the rest of the crowd mocked him, and while God the Father turned his back on him, these women sat at the foot of the cross simply beholding Jesus. And friend, can I tell you that truthfully, not just during Easter season, but in every day of life, to follow the example of the women in this passage is something that we should strive for, that we just simply behold Jesus. I wonder, have you beheld him this week? Have you thought on him with all his glory as the risen Savior? Have you thought about him as the one who died in your place? Well, there are many in our world who are still angry at Jesus or refuse Jesus or reject Jesus, I hope that there's at least some who spend their days just simply beholding him. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. There's just something about that name. Master, Savior, Jesus. Like the fragrance after the rain. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Let all heaven and earth proclaim. Kings and kingdoms shall all pass away. But there's something about that name. And so as Pilate questioned him, and as the religious elite rejected him, and as the soldiers beat him, and as Simon served him, and as the soldiers crucified him, and the crowd reviled him, and the father forsook him, and the centurion recognized him, and as the women beheld him, my question for us tonight is, what do we do with him? And the tenth thing is simply this. We remember him. Gene is going to come and, and begin to play on the piano, and we're going to get ready to observe the Lord's Supper. And as we do, I pray that we would spend this time doing what Jesus told us to do, to remember Him, to partake of the cup and to break the bread in remembrance of Him. You see, of a truth, sorrow and joy, they meet at the cross. As the sinless Savior died for the sins of the world, the world has never seen such a heartbreaking story take place. But can, can we agree today that the world has also never seen such a time of rejoicing as the Savior went to the cross and then triumphantly rose again? And so we remember Him. In one sense, we're overwhelmed with grief as we think about the Savior and all that He did for us. And in another sense, we're overwhelmed with joy as we think about the Savior and all that He did for us. I like what Spurgeon said in thinking upon the death of Christ. He said, The Lord of life and glory was nailed to the accursed tree. He died by the act of guilty men. 
We, by our sins, crucified the Son of God. We might have expected that in remembrance of His death, we should have been called to a long, sad, rigorous fast. Do not many men think even so today? See how they observe Good Friday, a sad, sad day to many. Yet our Lord never enjoined our keeping such a day or bidden us to look upon His death under such a melancholy aspect. Instead of that, having passed out from under the old covenant and into the new and resting in our risen Lord who once was slain, we commemorate His death by a festival most joyous. It came over the Passover, which was a feast of the Jews, but unlike that feast, which was kept by unleavened bread, this feast is brimful of joy and gladness. It is composed of bread and of wine without a trace of bitter herbs or anything that suggests sorrow and grief. The memorial of Christ's death is a festival and not a funeral. And we are to come to the table with gladsome hearts and go away with praises for after supper, they sang a hymn and went out. And so tonight we remember with hopeful expectation. We remember with joy-filled hearts. We remember with passionate cries of excitement. We remember with somber hearts as we think about all that He has done for us. And we remember for He is worth remembering. And so now as we get ready to close our service and as we think about the ways that people interacted with Christ on the day that He died, we with joyful hearts remember as he commanded us to do.